All right, good morning once again. Turn to Luke chapter 18, and we're going to be spending time this morning, Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. And as we transition into this time now, I know that I'll be doing all the talking, except for the occasional amens, which I encourage. But remember, you are equally engaged in this time by being active listeners and turning your attention to the Lord because he is speaking to all of us. This word right now is his timeless but impeccably timed word for right now, for this season of West Park, for what we need on this morning, September, fast forwarding a bit, September the 12th. So listen to the word of God today. Worship as you listen. So what I want to talk about today, first of all, is how occasionally we miss things and then suffer for it later. Have you ever realized that you were one day late for the 75% off sale? And maybe your email told you it, it's happening, but you realized it was actually the day before. Or perhaps you have slept in too late and missed class on test day. Maybe you have been working too much and you're starting to realize you're missing too many of your kids' formative years. Well, all of us miss crucial things that end up costing us. I can remember one time I was driving home to Ohio from South Carolina where I went to university and I had my best friend with me. We were in the same year in university, went through all of elementary and high school together. We stayed best friends, but we often argued. So there we were driving in my Oldsmobile. I was driving up Interstate 77 because once you hit Charlotte, there's this straight stretch up to Ohio. And if you just stay on 77, you're fine. But I realized just 30 miles north of Charlotte, I had missed a crucial juncture. And instead of going towards West Virginia, I had stayed in Virginia and gotten on Interstate 81 towards Roanoke. So... About 45 minutes later, once the argument between me and my buddy had died down, and I realized what I'd done, I turned around and I realized I had cost us about an hour and a half longer, making our nine-hour trip about 10 and a half to 11. Plus, I didn't want to go to Roanoke because that's where a bunch of people disappeared back in 1578, and this is not a good idea to go there. All right, it was, it was simple enough to backtrack and get back on the road that I had missed, but sometimes we can miss crucial things that cost us big time, and it's difficult to backtrack, and sometimes we don't get that chance. And this morning, we are given a glimpse into the life of one man who missed something, and it was a crucial thing, actually the, the, the difference between life and death kind of a thing. He missed it, and he walked away when he had found it, sad, because the cost was too high for him to go that way. And what we find is that this man who comes to Jesus and asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He seems very sincere in asking that question, but by the end of the text, He's gone. 
And Jesus is still talking about eternal life. It's still open, and the way there is available. But we find that only through Jesus Christ and faith in him can any of us have eternal life. But the title of the message this morning is quite simply, Don't Miss Eternal Life. Don't Miss Eternal Life. And I have two basic points in an application today. And the first point is that Jesus confronts us with eternal realities. He confronts with eternal realities. That's what we see happening in the text today. He likewise comforts with eternal realities. And we have to align ourselves under him and his teaching this morning because as we come to him, he has the words of eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. And so it is the difference between knowing him or not knowing him that is life and death. And my burden for each of you this morning is to not miss eternal life. So let's look at that first point. Jesus confronts with eternal realities. We see by verse 18 of Luke chapter 18, a ruler comes to Jesus and asks him something. So let me read verses 18 down to 23. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Well, in this section of scripture, we get a glimpse of another person who is drawn to Jesus and, and comes to him with the expectation of finding something that he, he is longing for in his heart. Perhaps he has been there as Jesus welcomed the little children to him. Remember that section of scripture last week, previously in Luke 18, where Jesus told his disciples, don't stop the children from coming to me. For the kingdom of God is made up of, of people just like this. And as a matter of fact, unless you come humbly like a child, you can't get in the kingdom. And I, and I think this man, who is described as a ruler, perhaps was looking on. And he was thinking about what Jesus had just said. A ruler, to our, our best understanding, is somebody who was a religious leader, not quite a Pharisee, but because he was so affluent, because he was so wealthy and positioned in life, he was respected, his moral character was exemplary, and we could probably think of him as kind of a non-staff elder in a church. Right? He had that kind of authority. He wasn't quite the lead person, but man, people respected him, and he had arisen to a position of authority. And what Jesus had just said probably piques his interest because this is a man who has been righteous. He has been holy. He's done things right. And his life seems to reflect that he's done things right. But he's 
anxious. This is what happens when your religion is based on what you do. You feel anxious. And I think that's what was happening in this man's heart. He comes to Jesus in, in this anxiety of not know, knowing quite whether he has gotten the kingdom just yet. He doesn't quite know if he's in. He knows, in his view, he's done everything that he knows to do. So he comes to Jesus and he addresses him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, he respects Jesus, is drawn to him, and is ready to receive anything that he has to say because he knows he can do it. He knows he can do it. So as we look at the text, Jesus responds to him and directs us through the confrontations that all of us need with eternal realities. And what we need now is the expectation that he addresses, he addresses us in the same way. Jesus responds to the man and says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why would Jesus say this? You and I know, with enough Sunday school classes and enough sermons that we've heard, that Jesus is God. And yet, Jesus responds to this man with what might appear on the surface to be something confusing to us and definitely to the man. We want to say, well, Jesus, just come right out and tell this man, you are God, that he's got it right. Now, what we need to know is Jesus is not denying that he is good. And I think if we were to see what Jesus is doing here, it's like he knows this man. As only he can in his divinity and only as he can in his analysis of us humans. And layer by layer, he's going to peel back who this man is. All the externality, all of the things he's done, all of the stuff that he's holding on to until he can get down to the center and Jesus is going to poke on something that's very sore underneath all of that. But he begins by asking the man, do you really intend to call me good? You know that only God is good. And then this would have been ingrained in the man's mind. For the man to call any human teacher good was unheard of because it was taught in the Jewish synagogues and by every Pharisee and scribe, only God is good. And that is the first eternal reality that Jesus wants us to grasp. Psalm 16, 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Psalm 34, 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. But on the contrary, Psalm 14, 3 says of us, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So to call any man good was considered heresy. And Jesus doesn't say, I'm not good. But by phrasing the question to the man, he peels back the layer of what he perceives to be goodness. Because this man thinks that he's really good. 
His obedience to him has been spot on and accurate and timed just right. And Jesus wants him to, to think again. Jesus then turns and exposes this man in a different way. And the second eternal reality that he confronts him with is that God's law exposes us as sinners. God's law exposes us as sinners. Since this lay leader in the religious scene who's highly respected could not admit that he himself was not good, Jesus turns to the law. God's law, starting with the Ten Commandments, was given so that when we read it, we would see two things. The exceeding holiness of God that far surpasses anything that we ever expected. I mean, who can have pure thoughts all the time? Who can never covet what somebody else wants? Who always is respectful to others and honoring to parents? Who never tries to get more than they're allotted in this life? Well, man, that is a standard that I can't even reach. But the law likewise shows us another dimension about our exceeding sinfulness in light of this law. The law can't save anybody, but the law stands throughout eternity. It is the standard by which all men and women must be measured. And we are guilty. So Jesus mentions a few of these commands. He says to the man, well, if you, if you want to inherit eternal life, if you want to do something, why don't you start with the law? He says, you know them, you know, do not commit adultery. You know, don't have a sexual relationship with anyone other than your wife. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. That means don't go out and say something about your neighbor that's untrue. Give testimony about what happens that is true and represents people in the right way. Don't mischaracterize them because you don't like them. Then he says, and, and you also know, honor your father and your mother. Right? So these, these come from the second tablet of the law. The first four concern our relationship with God. Jesus doesn't mention those. And then he goes on to mention commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. And the man, when he hears 5 through 9, says, yes, yes, I have done all those from the time I was a kid. And Jesus then probes further, peeling back further who this man is. As I said, he didn't mention the first four commandments, and he didn't mention the tenth. The tenth commandment is the one that got the apostle Paul. Paul says in Romans 7 that when he was reading about God's law, he could read the commandments and think, I'm doing pretty well. And then he got to number 10, you shall not covet. You, should, you, you shall not want what doesn't belong to you. You shouldn't long for things that somebody else owns, whether that's your neighbor's wife, whether that's his servant, whether that's his cow or his horse, whatever it is, his house, 
you shall not covet. And, and Paul said that pinned him to the floor and he realized, that's me, I'm guilty of that. And by coveting and wanting what was not his, he was longing for things that ultimately did not fulfill the first part of the law. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall worship the Lord your God alone. And this guilt was not felt by this man. But Jesus knows to peel that layer back, to press on that sore spot, requires him to hit that layer. And he says this, well, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. You know, one thing, it may seem like three things when we read it. Sell everything, give everything to the poor, and come, follow me. But it's all wrapped up in one thing. And it's in this question. Who or what do you really love? Who has first place in your heart and life? What are you holding on to as your supreme treasure and joy and satisfaction? Who is your God? And it says as this man heard these things, it hit him. And when he found out that to follow Jesus, to inherit eternal life, to actually get this eternal life that he was seeking, he would have to give away all that he held onto so tightly and everything that was precious to him. And it was just too much. And the Bible says that he went away sad because he was extremely rich. Now, many times in the book of Luke, he has used wealth, money, as a, a, a touchstone in people's lives to see whether they would follow Jesus or whether they would follow money, whether they would prioritize the Lord or whether they would prioritize what they could get out of life, whether they would live for eternity or whether they would live for this life only. When I was a teenager, I heard a speaker tell us that there are people in the church who are T-L-O people. That means this life only. I hope that sticks, that we can live that way, but that misses eternal life. It doesn't have to be wealth that binds us. It could be family connections. It could be the approval of your parents. It could be the love that you want to preserve with your spouse who, who may not want you to follow Jesus. It could be your children and pouring all that you have into your children that keeps you from following and submitting to Jesus. It could be anything. It could be your house and pouring all that you have into that and finding your protection and your sufficiency in what you own. 
These are all the things that Jesus mentions later on that Peter says, we've left these things to follow you. We'll get to some comfort about these things in a moment. But first we need to feel the sting and the confrontation of an eternal reality. That each of us, left to ourselves, would follow what we desire. And there are things that we have that stand between us and the Lord God. Things that we hold on to and that we're not willing to give up in order to follow Jesus. Whatever that thing is, that's like this man's wealth. The last thing I want to happen today is for any of you to leave today and you do not come to Jesus because what you are holding on to is just too impossible for you to give up. Now, Jesus does not tell each of us to go and sell everything that we have. You know, in just another chapter, we'll come to Zacchaeus, who was a short guy, who was very crafty and dishonest, and stole a lot of money from people. But when he got saved, he said, Jesus, I will give half of my wealth to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody, I'll restore them fourfold. See, Jesus didn't need to tell Zacchaeus, go and sell all that you have. Zacchaeus responded by saying, man, this stuff has been a shackle around my neck. You freed me, Jesus. I'm ready just to give it away. Right? So the heart that's freed looks at that stuff and says, praise God, it's gone. It's done. I, I read The Lord of the Rings and I saw that last one, Return of the King, not long ago. And I'm not endorsing all that, those movies and all those books, but this is what I remember vividly. In one of the scenes at the end, Frodo, who couldn't throw that ring into Mount Doom, and if you don't know the story, he had to take this ring of power and throw it into this volcano, and he couldn't do it. I won't give away how it happened, but somehow it got into that volcano and was destroyed. Sorry if I spoiled it for everybody. <laughs> but when he gets out, the whole world is falling apart. And he stands up on this rock in this island in the middle of all this lava. And he feels around where that ring used to be. And he says, it's gone. And you can see his face change. And he says, it's done. And I thought, man, how good it will be when these things that bind my heart to this earth and become something that gets in my face and gets grasped by my fist and I say, not this, Lord, but to actually be free and those things gone, done. We could say, praise the Lord. Jesus knew that it's tough to come to that and we cannot part with those things on our own. And that's why he, he paused with some humor. And as the rich man walks away, sorrowful, Jesus turns to his disciples and he, love in his heart. I know there's love in his heart. The Gospels tell us in other uh, versions of this same story that Jesus looked on this rich man and loved him. And with love in his heart, he just says how hard it is, how hard for a rich person to inherit the kingdom. It would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich person to enter eternal life. And that imagery is humorous, 
And it's exactly what it says. We're to picture a camel with all of its humps trying to squeeze through the eye of a needle. You can get the camel through there, but you'd have to make him into a big, long spaghetti noodle first, and he's not going to like it. Right? The pain and the stretching that that would require, you would never be the same on the other side. And the rich man, when he had come to Jesus, was from a distance seeing this big, broad, open gate, and he just wanted to make sure that he was really going to get in. But the closer that he got, the narrower it became until he's facing a pinhole. And he says, I can't do that. Impossible. And we can't blame the man for thinking that because the disciples said the same thing. Well, if this is the case, Lord, who can be saved? Oh, what a question. If we're exposed to sinners and God's law does not save us, how can we, sinners, be saved? Jesus then turns and he says something to them, which gets us to the comforts of eternal realities. Verses 24 to 23 now. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Can, can any of you save yourself and do good consistently enough all your life long to inherit the kingdom of God? No. No. Go ahead and try to squeeze through the eye of a needle. You can do it, but you'll never be the same, and you can't do it on your own. So Jesus answers, what is impossible with man is possible with God. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says this, and it's one of my favorite verses in 2 Corinthians. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Faith grabs onto not something to do. Faith grabs on to God himself. This verse tells us not that God will do these things. That would be good. But our confidence isn't even in something that we expect God to do. Our faith grabs hold of who God is. And in this case, it tells us that God is able. This is a good word. If he were not able to make grace appear in your life where there was only deadness, where there was fists grabbing tightly to this world and this life, if there was not grace, you would never be saved. But God is able. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Amen. How could any of these people, th that, that man who came, the ruler, or the disciples themselves, how could any of them be saved? It's not in the text today, but the very next few verses, verses 31 to 34, Jesus pauses again and he says to his disciples, we're still heading to Jerusalem 
And all these weeks and all these months, we've been heading to Jerusalem. And when I get there, the Son of Man will be flogged and beaten and killed, murdered, but on the third day will rise, just like the prophets have always said. And the prophets in the Old Testament predicted that one would come to put to an end the sin to actually cover the sin for all who would come. Cover it so that it would be done. To actually come to Jesus at the eye of that needle and find that he himself has paid the price to open it wide by his own blood. That he who was killed, he found the way and made the way he is the way so if, if you find that you cannot hold you you cannot release your fist turn to the one who is able to save you turn to the one who is able to unclench that fist and the one who can take you where you are as you are and as you come to him and give you that one thing you lack, which is actually, friends, everything. You can have everything and have nothing. But you can have that one thing, Jesus Christ. And you can have everything. One more thing that Jesus says in this, par- this story is that God takes care of his people always. God takes care of his people, always. I can identify with Peter in verse 28 when he says basically, look, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. I can feel the tension that he probably felt thinking about that needle's eye and thinking about what had to happen in his own life when he fell down in the boat and said to Jesus, Depart from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Just like that tax collector in the temple who cried out to God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Peter knew that Jesus had done that work in his life, but still we realize we live in this world where we still have ties, we still have stuff, we still feel that pull of this world. And Peter, as he looks at Jesus, he says, Lord, We've gone down this road. And implied in that statement is, what about us? So we can identify with that, can't we? We know that following Jesus is promised to be hard, but at the same time, we we like our our comforts. We, We need a bit of comfort to know what it will be like as we go ahead. And friends, we don't know what one week from the next will be for us in the near future or the distant future. And we can worry about it all we like, but the reality is, if you have committed your life to Jesus, you are in lockstep with him. And you can't go anywhere that he himself is not first. But what about us along this journey? What will happen to us? Jesus says, God takes care of his people always. Luke chapter 18, verses 29 and 30. Truly, says Jesus, I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus acknowledges that Peter and the others have left behind their homes, their livelihoods, and in some cases, even their families. Peter had a wife. Later on, the Apostle Paul refers back to that, and he says in the 2 Corinthians, you know, can't I as an apostle have a wife? Paul's answer is yes, like some of the other apostles. Peter, later on, would be with his wife more, but in this season of his life, he is following Jesus. He's not at home all the time. It's a unique special season in redemptive history. But there are some people whose spouses would say to them, you want to follow Jesus? I can't go that way. You might have some parents who say, you want to be a Christian? We didn't raise you to think like that. There can be some brothers or sisters that you might look up to who say, come on now, that's just a crutch for religious and emotionally weak people. You don't need that mess. And Jesus says, some have left those homes and they have determined that I am worth it. Now for those who have made that decision to follow me, who have come to find my grace sufficient to save them, who have nothing left but me now, well, Truly, he says, this is the word amen. When we say amen, that means, yes, it's true. That's solid and we can hold on to it. Truly, I say to you, no one who has left these things will not also receive in this time and in the age to come. That's where I get the word always. God takes care of his people always, both now with a hundredfold, and in eternity, eternal life. Um, the hundredfold actually comes in the passage of Mark, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute, but do it this way. Back in 2004, I was a, a recent graduate of seminary, and I went up to, back up to Ohio to work as an assistant to a pastor. In the course of that year, it became clearer and clearer that I was to go on a team to China. Now, back in 2002, I had sat in a meeting back at my seminary where someone came and said, man, you guys who, who have the, the world in front of you and the opportunities are boundless for what you could do, why don't you just give a year to going abroad in China? Serve the Lord there, teach English, make disciples, Maybe even preach to people that you can gather together. My best friend at the time left that meeting with me and said, man, I want to do that. And I said, me, no way. <laughs> I said, if I have to go over there and leave my family behind and I'm not married, I would be too lonely and there's no way I could do that. And I didn't change for two years. But the Lord unraveled those things I was holding on to, peeling back me by layer by layer, and I could tell you that whole story another time, and eventually got to that point where he conveyed to me, will you follow me and where I lead you or not? And I came to Mark chapter 10, verses 29 to 30, where 
same scenario, same situation. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. You see, our, our life now is, is a mixed bag of these blessings that we do not deserve and these difficulties that we can't avoid. Persecutions. But Jesus says hundredfold in this life. I don't take that to mean you're going to get rich if you follow Jesus. That might happen for some, but not for most. I'm not saying that wealth will be yours if you follow Jesus and you'll get a bunch of stuff. But what I experienced when I went to China was leaving behind my support structure and coming to trust the Lord in ways that I had never done before, to be stretched beyond what I ever thought could be possible for me, and to find in the meantime that a new family was gathering around me. As I followed Jesus, others were too. And we got to know one another and love one another. And ultimately, to my great surprise, even though I didn't go with a wife, God gave me one there. That's where I met Lauren. That's another long story, good story for another time. Now, this won't happen for every one of you. If you're single and you're wondering, if I go to China, will I find a spouse? <laughs> maybe, maybe. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is this. God takes care of his people. Always. Always. So as we close today, I have two applications that I want you to think about. In the first place, to any of my non-Christian friends who might be here today, don't miss eternity. Don't miss eternity. I often think of my father-in-law, who's now in glory. He's with the Lord Jesus. But he was an elder in a church long before he ever became a Christian. Because he was, by the world standards, a good man. And because he was available and came to church and was very generous. And so the people of his church, the leaders, made him an elder. There could be people like that here today. And maybe church leaders in the past have done you a great disservice because they liked that you donated to their churches. And so they affirmed that and just made an assumption that you are a Christian. But you know in your heart there's still this emptiness and you're wondering, what do I still have to do in order to make sure that I get to heaven? You can't do anything. By faith, you can hold on to Jesus Christ alone. And come to him today and ask him to forgive you of your sins and to receive his grace. And to my, my Christian friends here today, followers of Jesus, live with eternity in view. This life is not the only life. Put the perspective of what you're dealing with right now into the light of eternity. Trust Jesus. And there, there could be still a work of God that happens in people's hearts today. 